Wow, that was very kind and benevolent. Thank you, Ken. Um, wow, what I love about Village uh, is the people, uh, the warmth, the heartbeat, uh, and the, the local and global impact that Village is making. So it is truly an honor with so many gifted and talented uh, people on staff and fellow villagers to be able to have this morning to open up God's word together. Uh, so Ken, thank you for that extension and the opportunity. Uh, last week was one of those messages as well. Um, and when you hear a message and you go, okay, that's a defining message. Uh, that was last week. It really communicates the heartbeat, the DNA. And so if you didn't get a chance to, to listen to last week's, please do that and download that. Keep that for future uh, use. And so uh, I'm excited this morning to pick up on our study on Acts chapter 7. So I hope you have your Bibles. We're going to be looking at different verses uh, in that chapter. And, and I want to apologize straight up from the top. One, I didn't get all the verses on the slide. So uh, it's going to be directed to the, the verses in your hands and the device that you have that you're looking at those verses. Uh, secondarily, this is going to be more of a, a thematic type message. It's not going to be linear starting from verse one going all the way to the end. We can't do that. It's the longest chapter in the book of Acts given to me this morning. So thank you, Ken. Um, and it's the longest speech in the book of Acts. So there's a lot of content, a lot of information, and I'm going to be unpacking it kind of thematically uh, this morning. And so I uh, hope you have your Bibles, hope you have your seat belt on. We have a lot of content and I am super excited uh, to walk with you guys this morning in that. So Acts chapter 7 kind of marks this, I'll call a watershed moment that Luke is trying to get us to see. A couple of things that are kind of going on here. It's the marker point in the church to move its message from Jerusalem now out to the world. We have what Peter, Peter's message was to the Jews, right? And then we have Paul's message to who? The Gentiles. And we see at the very end of this, we see Paul kind of standing in the shadows and the end of Acts chapter 7. Here we have Stephen in the middle. He's kind of like this link in the chain. He's the link of the movement from the gospel that moves from the Jewish people now to the known world. And so now we're going to have this, this as, as if you will, it's a marker point of mission. It's a marker point of what is God doing among his people. And so we see in Acts chapter 6, leading up to this, that Stephen was this man full of the Spirit, right? He was full of the Spirit and he was, he was full of grace and power, doing wondrous signs among the people, Acts 6, verses 3 and 8. But then we see in Acts 6, 10, it says they, they could not withstand the wisdom to which he was teaching. They couldn't withstand the Spirit to which he was speaking about. But what was Stephen speaking about that got him in trouble? Well, Stephen was, as he was preaching prior to this, he was preaching and teaching that Jesus is greater than the things you've created. Jesus is greater than the temple. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than the fulfillment of the law. Jesus is God. Jesus is greater than all these religious customs and traditions. And Jesus is the centerpiece to which they were like, blasphemy, blasphemy, right? And so they brought him in before this council. 
Acts chapter 7. His council is basically the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the high governing officials. It's the Supreme Court. It's two Greek words meaning seated together. And so they would gather it together, 71 of their high priests, and it has the high priest ruling over the Sanhedrin. And so they bring him in, Acts chapter 7 now, as his speech to this ruling council. And uh, before he gives this speech, I think it'd be good for us to pause just for a moment, kind of go, what is going on here? There's a lot going on. It reminds me of this as a kid. Remember these, these types of uh, uh, books? Let's go ahead and open that first slide so you guys can see a little close up. There we go. You guys know these things. It's, it's the Where's Waldo book, right? These books are consistent of detailed double-page spreads with, with a lot of things going on and amusing things given the lo, these crazy locations. And you're supposed to find this world aficionado traveler, Waldo. And you're supposed to find Waldo in this picture. And at first you might go, man, this is chaos. Oh man, this is clutter. But as you start to look at it, it has you mesmerized with wonder. <laughs> and you start to look at it and you to see all what's going on, all in the story of happening here. But if you don't know Waldo, if you don't know who Waldo is, this picture is really confusing. If I were to go up to the Inuit tribe and say, find Waldo, they'll go, what's, what's a Waldo? Well, here's Waldo. Take a look at this. Here's what you're supposed to find. Here's Waldo. Now we have a description. Waldo is this guy who walks around with his glasses and knitted cap and his striped shirt and, his, and a cane. And now we know we're supposed to find this Waldo. We have now a picture. We have a word picture. This is Waldo. Now let's go back to that slide and now let's see if we can find him. How's your eyesight this morning, huh? Anyone find him yet? All right, let's see where he is. There he is in the corner. See the, the arrow. There he is. That was fine. I think we need to try at least one more time. We got his warmed up. So let's take a look at this one. I thought this one was appropriate for today because it's a, well, a picture 2,000 years ago. It's the, it's the ancient Rome and the Colosseums. And so here we have Waldo. Anyone find him yet? And... One more second, here we go. And there he is, almost in the middle top right there. There he is. We found him, good, good, good. So it's really easy to get distracted and confused with all that's going on. All the, the things that are happening and miss the whole picture, the grand narrative, if you will, of Scripture. We can get really confused, but what is God saying? What's the point of this picture? What's the point? Find Waldo. The point is to find Waldo. If we don't see that, then, then we're going to miss out. The point is that once you find Waldo, once you find him in there, that's, you can't unsee Waldo, can you? I call it the red Prius effect, right? I don't own a red Prius, but if today if I went to the dealership, bought a red Prius, what am I going to see the rest of the day? Every red Prius on the street. And so here Luke is talking about this grand narrative. He wants you to see something in here. We're going to kind of go to the next slide. We're not going to be mesmerized by that the whole time. It'll be distracting. We'll find other things in the picture. Um, but once you see it, you can't unsee it. There's full of these, if you will, Waldos in Scripture to get you to see the grand narrative so you didn't get lost in what's 
what's going on here. So Dr. Luke has written an incredible account and he's weaving these things through his gospel accounts, the book of Luke, and now the, the, the gospel accounts through the book of Acts. We're going to see what he's doing here. One of those themes that he's weaving through his story, he wants you to see him standing there in a corner, the Waldo's waving at you, is the Holy Spirit. You can't miss it. It's one of the key pieces to understanding, really, the book of Acts. So he's trying to get us to see that the significance and the power that it is the Holy Spirit doing a new work. It is the Holy Spirit guiding and ushering us into a new way of living. He's telling you that in order for us to understand that we are the church, we have to understand that we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. So there was 400 years of silence and then Luke chapter 1. You see the Holy Spirit everywhere. Someone kind of step back and see this grand narrative. You see the Holy Spirit working with John the Baptist. Luke 1, it says he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then we see Mary, the Holy Spirit came upon her. We see Zechariah, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Simeon, the Holy Spirit came upon him. So the whole entire Christmas story, the Holy Spirit standing there waving. He's everywhere. He's Simeon. He's with Zechariah, Elizabeth, and Mary. And then we see Jesus. He was, the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove. John chapter 3. And then John 4, we see that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. He was led by the Spirit. He returned in the power of the Spirit. And the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me. The Holy Spirit allows us to live a new reality. Don't miss this point. So here's Stephen's testimony in Acts chapter 6. We see them. he selected, it tells us that he had the Holy Spirit upon him. Acts chapter 7 shows us what it means to live in dependence of the Spirit. And then Luke gives you this other piece. Not always the Holy Spirit, but what's the Holy Spirit's job? The Holy Spirit's job, is, and, and Luke tells us in actually chapter 7, verse 1. And two, it says, the high priest said, are these things so? So they bring him in the Sanhedrin. And Stephen says, brothers and fathers, hear me. So he speaks with gentleness, speaks with honor. And his counsel is they're standing, sitting, watching him. And he says something very powerful. He says, the glory of God appeared. And then he goes into his speech. But Luke frames up something at the very beginning of his message. The glory of God we can't get past this. This is absolutely significant. He's telling you something is important here because then we got to go to the very end of his, his testimony. So we go to verses 55, uh, 54 and 55. Turn there. It's his response. So when they heard these things, he just finished giving his testimony. He gives his message. And they were enraged. They grounded their teeth at him because he was what? full of the Spirit. He was full of the Spirit. And it says then they saw what? He says that he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So who gets the glory? This whole entire thing, the book ends, the beginning and the end. Luke is telling you this whole entire thing is encased by the glory of God. Don't miss the significance of the Holy Spirit and the movement of the glory of God. Who gets the glory? Well, it's the king. 
the master, the Lord, all from the beginning, all of God's working, all of God's things. He's telling you that you and I are messengers empowered by the Holy Spirit to give glory to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's the glory. The glory. Glory is the fullness of the manifestation of all that God is. So when you think of God's love, it's his glory. When you think of his justice, it's his glory. When you think of his righteousness, his mercy, his wisdom, his just, all these words encase or encompass all his attributes rolled up, you can just say the glory of God. It's the most comprehensive term we have to describe who God is. And so I think we have to kind of pause and go, okay, what is Luke telling us in this chapter? He's telling us, one, don't miss the role of the Holy Spirit. Two, don't miss the role of the Holy Spirit is to magnify the glory of God through who? Christ. So then he goes on and says, okay, look here. It's the Christ who's here. So there he says, the full of the Holy Spirit gazes into heaven, sees the glory of God. And who is there? It's Jesus. And what's he doing? He's standing. He's standing there at the right hand of God. And they cried out in a loud voice, stopping their ears. And they said, then they started to cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And then he, he, he cries out, Lord, receive my spirit. He's quoting Jesus. Lord, do not hold their sins against them. Again, quoting Jesus. Because Stephen is even pointing back, it's Jesus, it's Jesus, it's Jesus. And Luke is even giving you some significant symbols, if you will, descriptors for you to understand something that's key here. Okay, and uh, one is that he is giving you some key things. He says, okay, Jesus is standing. Well, over 13 times in scripture, we see Jesus in his throne room and he's not standing. The other 13 times, he's what? He's sitting. He's seated? I said seated. He's seating. He is sitting down. He's there on the throne room. He's there sitting before our, our people. He's ruling and reigning. And then here we see he's standing. This is significant. This is the only time we see in Scripture that Jesus is standing there greeting. I think maybe it's part of his, his, uh, his word, his, his name, Stephen. So take a look at, at this slide. And so we see his name, Stepho, Stephanos, it's a Greek. It literally means to encircle, to entwine. It's a wreath. It means a crown. It's a victor's crown. It's a triumph crown. And so even there's this word picture, a double meaning of his name and a double meaning that he's entering into heaven to receive his crown. Then what's he do with his crown? He's going to cast that crown at the feet of Jesus because Jesus gets the glory. And as well as you see him standing Standing is also very symbolic because there he's in the council of Sanhedrin, the judges, and Jesus is standing, getting his final verdict of vindication and saying, he is not guilty. Beautiful picture, Jesus standing. And then it says that he is the son of man. Jesus referred to the son of man over 88 times in the New Testament. The first meaning of this was prophesied in Daniel. Let me read this for you. It's Daniel 7, 13 and 14. If you're taking notes, Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Daniel says this, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like the son of man. Coming in the clouds of heaven, he approached the ancient of days and he was led in his presence. 
He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men, every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Talking about Jesus, the son of man. Jesus takes on that name, takes on that significance. Jesus uses that phrase. And this is the last time that phrase is used. It's like this exclamation point upon exclamation point, exclamation point, not proper grammar. Luke is telling you, this is really, really, really important. Jesus is standing and he's the son of man. This is the only time he's standing and this is the last time he's referred to as the son of man. What he's saying here is the significance of this over and over again is that Christ is the king of our lives. He receives the full glory and then we can rest our lives into him and the rest is just the details. I'll say this probably again and again. The rest is just the details. When we submit our lives to say Christ is our king, to him be the glory, we have to just get over ourselves and realize the rest is just, whether it be in victory or whether in trial, whether in life, whether in death, it's all about him and it's all about his glory. Luke wants you to see the significance of what's being framed, the beginning of this and the end of this, so we see what's really going on here. I haven't even gotten to Stephen's speech yet. <laughs> These are just a few lines that Luke is trying to get us to see. It's for the glory of God, the glory of God. Don't miss the significance of what God's trying to do among his people when the Holy Spirit leads us. Now let's take a look at his speech a little bit. So I want to try to get you to see why they were so enraged over this. This is not really a defense. He isn't interested in defending himself. He simply wants to proclaim the truth of who Jesus is. He simply wants them to understand, to change their thinking that it's not about Jerusalem. It's not about the temple. It's not about the law. Those things are all important, yes, but it's about God working among his people. So Stephen's speech even implies that these institutions are changing. His institutions are no longer needed. These institutions have changed. So in this moment, he gives this panorama of the, the, the history of Jerusalem, history of the, the Jewish people. John Stott kind of breaks it down. So following his commentary on these four epics of Israel's history dominated by four major characters. That first major character, first major epic is in Acts 7, 2 through 8. And so he brings up Abraham. Talks, says, okay, brings up Abraham. Now, for all of us, Abraham probably doesn't have maybe a, a huge, significant theological bearing on our lives. I mean, we're not, if we're not coming from a Jewish mindset, Abraham doesn't resonate with us. And I can, I can probably say that is because these guys had had memorized the first five books of the Torah by the age of 12. So they knew, they knew. I mean, talk about a one on steroids. I mean, these guys knew the scriptures, right? So when you and I come into this, we're kind of coming in, probably grafted in from a, from a Greek mindset, maybe from a Gentile mindset. So for us, Abraham doesn't have maybe the stickiness to it. But he's speaking, hey, do you guys know Abraham? And they're like, uh, yes, we know Abraham. We're familiar with Abraham. And, he, and so for us, I'm gonna just gonna pause and go, okay, well, why is Abraham so significant? Well, he's the father of the nations. But the promise was given to Abraham. 
He's the father. You know, Father Abraham had many sons. I mean, son had Father Abraham. Anybody? Okay. All right. So here we go. All starts back. It always rolls back to Genesis. Goes back to Genesis. So when God speaks, God speaks, creation is brought forth. When God speaks, he's, Google tells me there's a billion trillion stars of the word of God's power. He speaks and the stars are put in their place. He speaks, Adam and Eve are created. And he's given them a, a job. He's given Adam and Eve to rule and to reign. He says, would you become my caretakers? Come and rule with me. And so it's kind of like God is here and he creates him. We are his, he is to be king of creation and we serve as his what's called under kings. He's been given us the keys to help serve and to rule and reign with God. This is the original order that God sets into place. But then all of a sudden something happens. There's a rebellion and it's more than just eating the wrong fruit snacks. They say, we want to become king. We want to rule and to reign. There, there enters in the pride of rebellion, the lust of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. And now they're split two different kingdoms. We have God's kingdom who's trying to restore things. And then you have Satan's dominion saying, well, you can become over king. So the two kingdoms are at odds. So in order for God to restore this, he taps on the shoulder of a guy named Abram. Later, Abraham in modern day Iraq. Says Abraham, sell everything, come with me. And his, he sells everything. It's credited him as righteousness. And all of a sudden, the people of Abraham start to multiply. You become citizens. And the, and the promise is that your people will be as numerous as what the stars of the sky. And as the people started to grow, they needed to be protected so they didn't get invaded and had to worry about building an army. And so the second person is Joseph. So Joseph then is part of this Egyptian exile and the people then go into exile. They're not happy, right? But they're what? They're protected. And so while they're there, God is still in control. God is still divine. God still has his plan. So he taps on the third person, which is Moses. And Moses, this is Jewish man who is rejected, shoved in a basket down the river, a murdering, stuttering, rejected shepherd. And God's working with Moses and then he delivers the nation. Now they have a land. Now they have a people and now they have a rule and reign. And it's the Mosaic covenant is the, the laws. 613 of these laws are given. And then as they're working, their place now needs a place for the king to rule and to reign, a king to come down. So where do kings reside? Reside in their palace. So where is God going to build his palace? He says, hey, why don't we create this tent? And then in that tent, just like kings have throne rooms, I will make a throne room. My throne room will be called the Holy of Holies. And kings then in their throne room come and sit on a throne, right? And the throne to which God comes down in that holy throne room is the what? The mercy seat. And so God creates this place where he's going to rule, he's going to reign. And then all of a sudden, the people start looking around and going, well, we don't really want this type of a thing because this show is kind of odd. You know, think about this. God selects this, this tribal group called the Levites. 
They're modern-day carnies. Have you thought about this? They basically pick up the tent, go to their place, set it down. There's this tribe of carnies setting up God's tent, moving around, and you have this holy of holies. You have this thing. It's bizarre. And they look at the world around them. They're going, oh, we want just a normal person. (laughs) Can we have just somebody come in? So they cry out for what? A king. So God gives them a king, Saul. And then anoints them. He's the first picture of the Messiah. Anointed means Messiah. And then there's another king comes out to run to the litter, David. David comes and he rules and that's the promised line of the eternal throne room, the eternal throne of Jesus. But then we see it's just this downward spiral of this kingdom rule and reign. Who's going to become king? And they say, we want to become our own king. We want to do it our way. And it spirals and it spirals. And the point in time, God goes, enough is enough. Go to your room. <laughs> right? Time out. 400 years. Go. God's timeline is different than us as parents, right? 400 years to go into their time out. The nation of Israel is flattened and destroyed. And then out of this, he speaks. And how does he speak? Like I just talked about, Luke chapter one, the whisper of the Holy Spirit. Whisper of the Holy Spirit, say, I'm building something new. To which Christ comes as the Messiah to rule and to reign. These covenants, people, place, a rule, a ruler, What is God doing? He's establishing his kingdom rule and reign. It's a new kingdom, the already not yet kingdom, because God is a God of love. It's a new rule, new reign, to which Abraham through David in the story's narrative of the Old Testament, which I just ran by in about 10 minutes, and all of a sudden you start to see a different reality coming in. Different reality is that God's presence wasn't limited to a particular place. Stephen's pointing out God wasn't limited. He spoke while you were in exile in Egypt. He spoke when Abram was in Iraq. He spoke at all these times in the Babylon. He spoke outside of the temple of God. He's been speaking. He's been leading. He's been guiding. God has been always working. God is always on the move. God is always on the march. God is moving us to live an adventure of following the movement of the Holy Spirit. So boiling it down, there's two really things that Stephen tells them. First is that the presence of God is never restricted simply to a location called the temple. Second thing, he's calling them out. Religious leaders have a history of rejecting God's truth. The Israelites in this place have a really bad habit. A really bad habit, and that is what? Is rejecting God. These religious Jews had their salvific emphasis on the temple and the Torah. They told people that in order to have a relationship with God, you must go into the temple. In order to have a relationship with God, you had to memorize these. You have to do that. The presence of God was in the temple. And then you had to keep these traditions and to keep these laws. And so Stephen is toppling their theology with a message of grace and love to which their ears didn't want to hear it. So keeping the law or keeping the temple, keeping their holy places, but missing Christ is a tragedy. God is not imprisoned by the temple. 
God is not on display like some kind of caged animal. God is not domesticated for our own means and our own desires. God is not limited to our own preferences and our own personalities. God is much bigger than that. And we need to see that the Holy Spirit's leading and guiding us to see how God wants to move. Stephen's words about the temple spoke straight to their heart, the heart of stone. Because he's saying God is much bigger than this. Rather than being a place to meet with God, the temple had become a place of religious snobbery about themselves. So now turn to Acts 7, 51 and 53. So the end of his message, he says, you stiff-necked people, again quoting Moses, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist, there it is, Waldo waving at you, the Holy Spirit. You've always resisted the Holy Spirit and your fathers did, and now so do you. In which the prophets, did your fathers not persecute? Did they kill those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you now have betrayed and murdered? He's telling them, guys, this is a message similar to what John the Baptist said. Repent, repent and believe. Jesus picks up that same message from John the Baptist. Repent, repent, and believe. Stephen's picking up that same message. Repent, believe, repent, and believe. There is a new work God is doing. You need to be broken from just your spiritual worldview and see what God's at work. I remember it was my, my first ministry assignments, and I was called into ministry, and they had just built a brand new educational wing. Two stories, youth ministry wing on top, huge vaulted ceilings, a, a stage in one corner, a, a beautiful full kitchen in the other. And they had just finished it literally weeks before I arrived, and the smell of glue and paint in the room was strong, you know? And I walked in there, and they, it was beautiful, but they forgot one thing, the decorations, and so all I had was an overhead projector, a few slides, and a bunch of metal chairs and high school, middle school students. So my first order of business was, hey, let's create space for us. And so I said, hey, is there any quality used couches among us? So I made an appeal to the church and all of a sudden parents were being dropped, kids were dropping off by their parents and all of a sudden there's couches showing up, more than I needed, right? And so uh, the closest place to drop off a couch was a couple hours away. So before you know it, couches were just multiplying in my youth ministry. And so I get a call one day from, from a gal and parents were excited, kids were excited, but this one senior saint was a little perturbed. So she calls me up and says, I hear on good report that you have a Davenport in your student ministry room. Davenport? Da, 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 da. I never heard that word. I don't know. I don't know what a Davenport was, so I'm stalling. And I go, well, could you describe it for me, please? <laughs> oh, I can't do that. There's so many of them. And to which I go, oh, yeah, you're right. I have so many. Thank you so much. I don't think I need any more. Oh, no, 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 no. I would never consider bringing a Davenport to your ministry. And I thought, okay, uh, can you help me understand what it is about the Davenport. So I'm still, still a little puzzled. So I'm looking in my Oxford Dictionary, Davenport, Davenport. Ah, Davenport, a couch, a sofa. And so to which I understand what she's getting at. And so she goes, how can you take the word of God so seriously and let someone slump in a couch? 
They will walk away. Teenagers will walk away. They won't believe in the authority of Scripture if you let them sit in a Davenport. So I said, you're right. Why don't you come on Sunday and we'll, we're walking through the book of, of Genesis. I would love to have you come up with me. And to my surprise, she did. She came. And so she saw us getting into scripture, saw us diving into the words of God. And all of a sudden her heart started to shape and she became my biggest prayer warrior for our student ministry. Because she realized it wasn't about the Davenports, was it? That was just simply a tool. She wanted people sitting in nice metal chairs with a nice firm seat. You gotta have proper posture. These are the things you must have in order to receive the word of God. But I often wonder, are there Davenports in our lives? Are there things in which we get hung up on? We, don't, we, we miss because we're focused on the things and we miss the divine initiative of the Holy Spirit. Because we're focusing on our preferences, we're focused on the things that we want and we miss the biggest reality is that God wants to move and he wants to lead us, he wants to guide us, he wants to change us. Change is powerful for all of us. It's painful, yes. We're not just changed for change's sake, but change moves us to where God wants us. Sometimes we can get lost in our cherished buildings and our customs and the things that we want to hold on to. But I love this definition of success. Take a look at this. Success is at last year's nest from which the birds have flown. Sometimes I think we're too busy protecting our nests and not chasing the bird. So what are the nests in our lives? What are the nests in which we hold on to, which we protect, which we love, the bird is gone. So village, it's so easy for our hearts to hold on to how God's worked in the past and assume that's a form of spirituality. What's God saying to us now? What's God saying to us as a people? You know, one of the things that I've committed myself to is when I walk into this place of worship, the question I'm asking is, God, will you receive all the glory? It's not about me. It's not my preferences. It's not about my song list. It's not about the rhythm. It's not about whatever it is. But God, are you receiving the glory? And then I walk out those doors and say, God, I want to be on mission for you. What about you this morning? Change as a follower of Christ is difficult. Change in our own hearts sometimes is challenging. And sometimes we hold on to things to which Holy Spirit's leading and guiding you and saying, will you be obedient here? Will you be obedient? The rest is just the details. Don't get stuck in the details. Get stuck saying, I want the glory of God. For me, as I was reminding of this this week, there's a, uh, the hymn writer says it this way, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God of love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Isn't it so easy for our hearts to wander? So easy to get off mission? So easy to get distracted? So easy to miss the grand narrative of what God's doing? And that is that God is king. And God is ruler. The rest is just the details of your life. We can get hung, we get stuck on those things. And so here's the deal is that these guys then grab some stones and they... They killed Stephen. 
Rocks are, are, are hardened to change. And I, and, I, and I actually, I think in that story, as I look at that, I go, man, God, I pray that my heart isn't so hardened. My heart is so removed. My heart doesn't allow you to speak. My heart doesn't allow. It becomes the, remove the barnacles. I am the idle factory. I make all these things in my heart. God, help me become more like you've called me to live on mission with the power of the Holy Spirit. God, do that work in me. Help me chase the birds. God is loving, wrapping his loving arms around us. And he's saying, is your heart ready to change? Stephen knew who his king was. He was serving the king of kings. He understood what it meant to die to himself and live for Christ. And as Paul stood by watching this, really could see really the Stephen's death. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Why? Because they're running to the cross. So this morning, run to the cross. Run to the cross. Find your life so enthralled with the cross and not all the other peripheral things that trip us up. We can be proud of the things we've done, the things we've made, but at the end of the day, it's for the glory of God. So let's drop everything. Let's follow Jesus. Let him be the final glory and victory.